Uh, turn, please, if you will, in the scripture to 1 John in chapter 5. 1 John in chapter 5. I want to read verses 13 through 19. I have a particular um, couple of sentences and all of that I want to focus uh, upon. But just before I read and before I pray, I want to just outline this passage quickly for you. Um, verses, uh, thir- verse 13 is the assurance verse. So when you listen to me read it, you hear that John is summing up. We've, we've read this verse a number of times just by way of introduction, really, to the letter of 1 John, but he assures us of salvation. And then in verses 14 and 15, he says that because we're assured of our salvation, we'll pray. And then in verses 16 um, and 17, he gives us something very specific about which to pray. Then 18 and 19 help us in understanding that as well. So now that we've found that and have our minds around it, let me, let me pray. Father, now please, as I read this word, I pray that we hear it not as something I'm reading that is my voice, but, but, but we know that this is the very word of God and that we would hear his voice. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, this is the word of the Lord. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. I want to focus in, if God will help me, in in, in these verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead uh, to death, there is a sin, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. To death. Now, John, in his letter, has spoken much, as you might imagine in reading the Bible, much about sin. In the first chapter, he says that if we say we uh, have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That is, we're lying to ourselves because the fact of the matter is we do, we have sin. And then he says, if we say we haven't sinned, then we're actually calling God a liar because we have sinned and God has said that we've sinned. And so if we say we haven't, we're calling him a liar. Now the good news, as you remember from that chapter, is that John says that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John also says that he's writing that we wouldn't sin. In other words, it's his hope 
his desire that we wouldn't sin. But then he reassures us again by saying, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And so we know then that those of us who have been born of God, Christians, those who have been born of God, have an entirely different relationship with sin than those who haven't. And by that I mean that, first of all, we realize that the penalty of our sin has been paid, has been taken by Jesus, what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that the sting of death is gone. A stinger is taken out of death. Why? Because that sting is, 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 is judgment. And we know that as believers in Jesus, because he's paid the penalty for our sin, he's the propitiation for our sin, then we know that this stinger is, is gone. He's taken that judgment. So when we die, we enter into the presence of the Lord. Sins forgiven, righteous, justified in his sight. And not only that, but the dominion of sin has been taken from us. We're, we're no longer enslaved to sin. That doesn't mean we don't sin, but it means that we're no longer enslaved to it. How does Paul say it to the church in Corinth? That we've been transferred from this kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son in whom there's redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And now you see we're freed. We're freed not freed so that we can go back and sin, but we're freed from it so we can live unto righteousness. In 1 Corinthians in chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and um, verse 14, the apostle puts it like, like this. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who might that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, was raised. And so now, you see, we're freed to live for, for Christ. And then in chapter 3, John spends a great deal of time saying, for instance, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And Jesus appeared in order to take away sin so that in him there is no, no sin. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him nor known him. And he summarizes that whole point in verse 18 of chapter 5, which I read a few moments ago. In this verse, he writes, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of, of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. And that little expression doesn't keep on sinning. We know that we sin, but John's point is that we're no longer characterized by sinning. We're now characterized by faith in Christ and characterized by living in a way that's pleasing to him. Do we do it perfectly? Obviously not. That's why we confess our sins. But yet our heart's desire and the movement of our life and hopefully what characterizes our life isn't sinning, but following after Christ living, as he puts it, walking in the light, walking as Jesus, walking as Jesus walked. Um, and now notice what he says. He says in verse 16, that if we see 
a brother, and I would say a sister, see a brother or sister committing sin, we are to pray. Of course, this isn't uh, everything that the Bible says about what to do when we see a brother or sister committing sin. In Matthew 18, we're told if, if, if we see one sinning, someone has sinned against us, we go to them. Uh, Luke 17, it says if we see someone in sin, they've sinned against us, we should rebuke them and forgive them if they repent. Uh, James has much to say uh, uh, about this. He says if we find one wandering from the truth, we should um, bring that person back. In Galatians 6, we find that if we catch any in transgression, that we should restore them. So, so there's other things that the Bible says about what to do when we find a brother or sister in sin or committing a sin. Uh, but, but that doesn't concern us right now because we're in First John. And what we want to do is think about, be concerned about what concerns him as we're reading through this particular letter. And what concerns John is that if we see a brother or sister committing a sin, we should pray for them. We should pray for them. Now, he introduces prayer. I think he introduces the concept. Fourteen uh, and fifteen, but John says that for those who are assured that they have eternal life, this assurance that breeds, if you will, or brings with it a confidence in in prayer. Um, John Calvin said it like this: He said, "Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith." We know that we have eternal life, that we trust in Jesus. That should result in prayer. Because if we trust him, if we believe in him, if we trust him, it means we desire then to please him. And we know that he's wise, and so we go to him and ask him, how can I please you? And he speaks to us in his word. And then we know that we're weak, and so we ask him, Give us strength in order to do that to which, for which you've called us to do. So prayer, you see, is the chief exercise, we could say, Calvin said it, of faith. John says that we can have confidence towards him when we ask anything according to his will. We know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So it goes like this. We ask according to his will, and we ask according to his will, we know that he hears us. And when we know that he hears us, that is, we know that we ask according to his will, then we can be confident that we'll have that for which we have, we've asked. Now, we could spend from now until I don't know when talking about how do we know what the will of God is so that we can pray in the will of God. Let me just give you two things to think about. Number one, that when we talk about the will of God, um, we divide it into uh, at least a couple of categories. One category is what we call the decretive will of God, what God has decreed. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a theologian of some note, um, defines it like this. He calls it the sovereign or hidden will of God. He says, by this theologians, 
refer to the will of God by which he sovereignly ordains everything that comes to pass. Because God is sovereign and his will can never be frustrated, we can be sure that nothing happens over which he is not in control. Read that again. Because God is sovereign and his will can never be frustrated, we can be sure that nothing happens over which he is not in control. He at least must permit whatever happens to happen. Yet even when God passively permits things to happen, he chooses to permit them in that he always has the power and right to intervene and prevent the actions and events of this world. Insofar as he lets things happen, he has willed them in this certain sense. In other words, nothing can come to pass unless God decrees that it can come to pass because he's God. And so we can always know the decreed of will of God after it happens. Because we can say that was in this decretive sense, God's will. God wills all things that come to pass to come to pass. We can't usually know what that is. And now God has made some promises and he's told us, for instance, he told the folks in the old covenant that the Messiah would come and he came. He tells us that Jesus is coming again. We know that. We don't know when, but we know that he is. But that isn't probably what John is talking about. He isn't saying that if you can figure out what's going to happen, then pray for it and it will. Rather, he has in mind, secondly, the preceptive will of God, that is, God's commands and promises, his precepts and his desires. As we read through the scripture, God commands us, gives us wisdom on how we're to live that which would please him. We read the Ten Commandments, we read the Proverbs, we read um, throughout various long passages of scripture, whether the the ethical sections of the Sermon on the Mount or Romans 12 through 14 or Colossians 3 or um, Ephesians 4 through 6, right? Passages of Scripture that teach us how to live. And, and so that we know is the will of God for us in the sense that these things please him. So John is saying when we pray about those things that we know will please the Lord, then we'll have that for which we asked. We'll have confidence. And we don't always know the timing of that. And of course, what we have here isn't everything that, that uh, uh, the Bible speaks to us about prayer. Uh, we, we know, for instance, that um, uh, not only are we to pray in the will of God, but we're to pray with the right motives, James tells us. And we're to pray with a heart that says, once we know the will of God, we'll actually do it. Um, we're to pray persistently. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that we're to ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and seek on, keep on, keep on knocking. That is this sense that we have to continue to be in prayer because life is persistent. It keeps coming at us. We'll continue to be praying for these things again and again and again and again because we find ourselves always in need of God's help uh, to us. But John says here, that we are to pray. And we want to ask what John has in mind. Well, he tells us, I think, in verse 16. He says, if we see our brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. He shall pray. And that, in a sense, is a command, but really, the way John is laying it out here, it's just sort of a natural kind of thing. That is to say that, that, that when we see our brother sinning, 
our, our response, you could call it a knee-jerk response, is to pray. Not to be judgmental. Not to gossip. Not to slander. But to pray. That should be our first, if you will, response to all of this. And notice the promise. This is what's so arresting to me. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Now remember, this is a believer. This is a brother or a sister. This is someone who's, who's a believer. So when, when, when John writes, he'll give him life, we mustn't think that the person has fallen into, into death, spiritual death, and now has to be given life again. But this, this sense of life, either restoration to fellowship, we know that when we sin against God, it affects our, our fellowship with him just in the same way in human relationships. If we, we sin against each other, you know that it sort of it strains that relationship and something needs to happen before it can be restored and life given back to that relationship. Or it simply could mean, and probably does, at least this would be my view, that what John has in mind is eternal life in the sense of life that is to come. He mentions eternal life in that sense in chapter 2, verse 25. But, but this sense of enabling this person to persevere to the end. He'll give him life, that is to say, that will enable him to continue to persevere so he'll know and have eternal life. John says we're to, we're to pray. But he gives, and I'm, I'm smiling when I say this, because I often refer to this distinction that he gives as a distracting distinction, because John says, now, if the person is, committed, is committing a sin, the sin that, that leads to death, I'm not saying you should pray for them. Now, that's a rather passive way. He's not actually saying don't pray for them. He's saying, I'm not, I, I'm not saying you should pray for them. They commit this sin that leads to death. Um, but he's saying if, they commit a, this, if the sin they're committing doesn't lead to death, then you should pray for them. And the promise is that God will give them life. You know that's in the will of God, and God will do it. He will give them, he will give them life. Now, I know what you're all expecting. You're all expecting me now to tell you the difference between a sin that doesn't lead to death and a sin that does. And that's why it's distracting. <laughs> because if you'd like to spend the rest of your life reading commentaries on this passage, you could probably do that. And at the end, I'm not quite sure. You'd know exactly what John is talking about. Uh, at least very few are willing to be that definitive. The assumption is that the people to whom John originally wrote knew exactly what he was talking about. So he didn't have to really go into any detail. But those of us now would really have preferred that he did. But it's the word of God, so we can't even ask it of that. But we can begin to think, what in the world could John mean here? Well, uh, it might be, though it's unlikely, that he's referring to the same type of sin that Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, when people were coming to the Lord's table without examining themselves and rightly discerning the body. And John said that some, because of that, were taken ill, and some even died. And so when we come to that passage, we just kind of scratch our heads as well. 
because what exactly was happening and to what exactly was Paul referring. Um, but John hasn't mentioned communion at all in his letter, so we wonder about that. Some have said that he's distinguishing certain types of sins, some sins that are forgivable, some sins that are unforgivable, and even discussing mortal and venial sins and all that. But we don't find any great discussion, especially in the scripture in the New Testament, about, about distinctions among sins like that. Um, Jesus does refer to a sin, if you will, that's unforgivable, which he references as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, another one that if you're coming upon that, those verses in the Synoptic Gospels and uh, you pause for a while and you think, have I ever seen that? When does that actually happen? Now, in the context in which Jesus speaks it, uh, there are those religious leaders who should know better who ascribe the work of Jesus to the work of Satan. And so perhaps it's that. But then there are testimonies of people who have been Satanists who've become Christians. And so their sins have been forgiven. But still there's something real there. And some would simply say it's, it's this persistent hardening of the heart that continues to deny the witness of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 discusses something similar to that, it seems, where he talks about people who are involved in the life of the church and who have tasted some of the goodness of God through experience in church life and then fall away. He says they won't be able to be brought back to repentance. So perhaps John has those folks in mind. And perhaps it's, it's simply a reference to the people who have already left the church, people who have denied Christ and left the fellowship uh, of this church to whom John writes, these churches to whom John, John writes. Uh, we read about them in chapter 2, um, in verse 22. John says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. It's the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Perhaps he's simply saying this. If you know the person's a brother or sister, they've actually professed faith in Christ. They're part of the fellowship to which, the fellowship of the church. And you see them commit a sin. Pray for them. Pray for them. And if I could just add my own personal application of this. If I'm going to err, I'm going to err on the side of praying. I'm going to err on the side of praying. Because I think that's what John wants us to do. He wants us to pray when we see a brother or sister committing sin. We know them to be one who professes faith in Jesus. The Jesus that the apostles preached. The Jesus we know who's the son of God, who's come from God in the flesh, who's given himself for us. And who's been raised and ascended and rules and reigns and will return. The Jesus who is the propitiation for our sins. The Jesus who is our only hope and the only hope of the world. That Jesus then we should pray. 
But the promise here is so wonderful. And we mustn't miss the promise. Because of John, for instance, in verse 18, he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. Have you ever wondered what keeps you from sinning more than you do? Well, you, I hope, make a long list of this. You talk about God and his, his providential care for us and his help for us and the spirit at work in our lives to convict us of sin and to lead us and guide us and all that and, and his word that, that leads us well so that we can understand what pleases God. Uh, but also this, our praying, but particularly, John says, the praying of others for us. Do you see that? Do you see that in this passage? That John's saying if we see a brother or sister commit sin, we should pray for them and God will give them life. And then he says we won't keep on sinning. Well, one of the means through which we won't keep on sinning is the prayers of others for us when they see that we are sinning. And our prayers for them will keep them from sinning when we see them Sinning, be restored. Point is, if we're not doing that, we're sinning way too much. But if we are doing that, and that's the means through which God uses to keep us from sinning. You know, there's a horrible, horrible expression made of the church, and I hate to hear it. The expression is that the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. Have you heard that expression? No, I hate that expression for a number of reasons. One is because I, th- I don't think it's actually utterly true. I think it can happen, but I don't think it characterizes the church of Jesus Christ. And I don't think Jesus likes to hear it because he loves his bride and he doesn't, love, he doesn't like it when people disparage his bride any more than a husband would like it if someone disparaged his wife. But we know the tendency, don't we? We know the tendency to gossip and to slander or to think ourselves better when we see others in sin. And we know how easy it is to ostracize those who are sinning in particular ways. We just know that. We see it. We know the tendency. And John says that one of the ways that you know that you're a believer in Jesus is that you love one another. And one of the ways that... You know that you love each other is that when you see each other in sin, when you see another in sin, that you don't gossip, that you don't slander, that you're not judgmental, that you don't remove yourself from them, but first and foremost, that you pray for them sincerely, that God would restore them. That should be your first impulse. And your first impulse, because you love them, because I love them, it should be my first impulse. We all know that it isn't always our first impulse. But it should be our first impulse. It should be our first impulse because of empathy, because we know that we're sinners too. I was in a good conversation with a good friend this week, and uh, we were mentioning the fact that when Christians sin, it should make us sad, but shouldn't surprise us. And the reason it shouldn't surprise us is because we're sinners too. It should make us sad, 
in our own lives and the lives of, for the lives of others, but shouldn't surprise us when we sin. But it should lead us then, you see, in love, to really pray for them. You know the, the parable that Jesus taught of the prodigal son. You know how it goes. You know there are two sons of a wealthy father. The one son uh, asks his father for the inheritance so he can, he can have it and leave and go on and be on his own. And so the father grants it. The son takes the inheritance, squanders it, you know, in riotous and sinful living. Finds himself in a situation where he's so poor that he's actually taking care of pigs and desiring to eat what he's feeding them. And this is such a disgrace, it would be a great disgrace for a Jewish young man to find himself feeding pigs, touching them, being in that whole environment. So you can see how horrible it is for him. And then he comes to his senses, Jesus says, and he begins to think about his father. And he says, my father has servants who, who eat well, and, and so I'm, I'm going to go back to my father. And you remember, he goes back to his father, and his father sees him coming and runs and sees him. And he, and he puts on the, the, the robe, covers up his smelly, dirty, bruised body, puts shoes on his smelly, dirty, pig slop feet, gives him the family ring that says, no, now you belong to us and you can go and Spend however you wish because you have the Father's ring. I'm good for everything that you spend, everything that you buy. But you also remember the point of the story is there's the elder brother. And the elder brother finds out that his, his, his younger brother has returned. And his dad's excited about that and is going to throw a big party for him. And he huffs and puffs. And he says, I've been here all this time and I've never done that. And yet I've never had a party either. And, 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 and his father says, oh, you know, but your son is dead. No, he's alive, lost, found. Have you ever thought about it, that story, and, and thought, how should the elder brother responded, really, when he saw his younger brother run off and squander everything in riotous living? You know exactly how he should have responded. He should have been heartbroken. He should have gone to his dad and said, Dad, I feel so bad for my younger brother because he's missing what we have. He's missing the fellowship that we have. He's missing your care. He's missing your protection. He's missing your provision because he's on now in this, in this way of his own. And so, Dad, what can we do? Can't we go get him? What, what should we do? How can we help him? Please forgive him. And, and then, and then when, 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 when this younger son starts to return, uh, the father sees him, but the brother should, if he sees him too, he should run and he should be on his dad's coattails going, I can't wait, he's home. And, and he'd be whispering in his father's ear the whole time, please forgive him, please forgive him, please forgive him, please take him back. That's it, isn't it? We need each other, people. We're going to continue this walk of faith. Let's walk with Christ. We need each other. We're going to persevere to the end. We need each other. And the truth of the matter is that we'll sin. The truth of the matter is I'll sin. And what we need to do, first and foremost, perhaps not the only thing, but first and foremost, our instinct should be to pray. 
that God would forgive and restore. That God would forgive and restore. You see, we sometimes think that prayer is making a list of all the things we don't think God would ever want us to have and then try to wrestle these things out of them through the course of our life. When prayer actually is learning what pleases him and going to him and asking that prayer is the means through which that which God intends for us to have will come to us. And one of the things that we know for sure that God desires for us is that his children, those who believe in him, will walk with him. And so when we see each other's sin, we should pray. Because our hope is that we can all celebrate together. Our hope is that when the fatted calf is killed, that we can celebrate together. And the fatted calf has been killed even our Lord Jesus, for us, so that we together, persevering together, in relationship together, can come together at his table. The night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? Declaring that Christ died for us. We're declaring the penalty has been taken. We've been taking the... Uh, declaring that the power of sin over us has been, been broken and now we're to live in a way that pleases him. And we're declaring that we're in this together. We're declaring that we love each other. We're declaring that when each other sins, we won't gossip or slander or think ourselves better, but we'll pray that our Father will give life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray now that you'll take this bread and this juice and you'll set it apart in a, in a way that only you can do to remind us that we're in the very presence of Jesus who is our peace. And that Father, even, even now, as we think of brothers and sisters, that we know are in sin, particular ways that we would lift them to you even as we lift our own sins to you. And we pray that this would be a means through which you would restore, bring assurance of eternal life, keep us from sinning, enable us to please you. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.